This Dharma Talk is brought to you by the Chicago Zen Meditation Community. Learn about us and our teacher, Miyoshi Thompson, at zenchicago.org. Well, good evening, everyone. It's nice to see you all here. Uh, I have a kind of painful topic to talk about uh, tonight, but I hope with some opportunities for healing also. The war between Israel and Hamas that's broken out in recent weeks has been causing vast suffering. I really appreciated Nick's calling our attention to it a few weeks ago and talking about how our precepts, such as not killing, can apply to the situation. And the particular aspect uh, that I want to look at tonight in light of Buddha's teachings relates to our tendency to fall into polarized thinking in which other humans are seen as less than fully human and in some sense are considered just other. For instance, the Israeli defense minister referred to the Palestinian attackers as human animals and thus justified denying the people of Gaza basic human needs, including food and water. And a member of Netanyahu's cabinet recently expressed openness to using nuclear weapons on Gaza. Nick Kristoff, whose writings in the New York Times on the Middle East I find especially insightful, says that mutual uh, dehumanization in that area is the worst he has seen in several decades of local reporting. Some people were advocating for the killing of children on the other side because they would grow up to be enemy killers and it was seen as more merciful for their future victims. In this country, 51% of young Americans aged 18 to 24 said that Hamas's barbaric killings of Israeli civilians could be justified. Many who back Israel view all Palestinians as supporters of Hamas and terrorism, even though a recent report of a poll taken before the attack revealed that overall Hamas was not very popular in Gaza. Some Jewish people take any statements about the context in which the attack arose as anti-Semitic and as showing support for terrorism without regard for the suffering of those Israelis killed and abducted. In some groups that are particularly focused on social justice, expressing any empathy for those Israelis results in being castigated as colonizers and oppressors. Anti-Semitic incidents and attacks are way up. So is Islamophobia, persecution of advocates for Palestinian rights, and calls to reinstitute travel bans on Muslims. You might be seeing posters up around town, with some showing a picture of an Israeli 80-year-old with the word kidnapped, and others showing a picture of a Palestinian child reading, you funded my murder. I spoke to a Jewish woman recently who gave me more insight into how endangered her community was feeling. She's part of a group of American Jews with close ties to Israel, and most of the people in her social media feeds knew someone who was killed or abducted in the attack or have a family member in the Israeli army. They're all spending a great deal of time on social media, 
and send each other horrific videos and information about various barbaric acts committed during the attack. She noted the increasing of anti-Semitic incidents around the country and told me that there's a thing on social media where Jewish people are asking, would you hide me as if another Holocaust is coming? The community is very focused on the ongoing suffering of the captives. In synagogues around the country, we're doing special prayers for them, including having members hold up their individual pictures during services. The suffering on the other side now that over 10,000 Gazans have been killed, doesn't receive much attention when people are agonizing over their own losses and are fearful about the future. I realize I'm in a privileged position here as a white woman who was raised Christian without particular ties to Israel or Palestine. I am a practitioner of a minority religion in America, but no one is phoning in death threats to our Sangha. Some people in America think you're a weirdo if you're a Buddhist, but it generally doesn't make people want to kill you, as is often the case for Jews, and it doesn't make people think you're likely to be a terrorist, which is often the case for Muslims. So easy for me to say in a sense, but I felt that the intense focus on the horrific acts in the latest attack video with more gruesome images was not helpful and was making, feel, uh, making people feel more endangered and distressed and more apt to view all Palestinians as the enemy. I would feel similarly about people immersed uh, in constant traumatic images of Gaza being blown up. So I'll return to this issue uh, in a little bit with some ideas from Buddhist teachings. But this polarization around Israel and Palestine reminded me of Miyoshi's recent mention of the proportion of Americans thought that political violence in service of their side was justified because they saw the other party as wanting to destroy America. Some authors recently pointed out the apocalyptic and dystopian themes espoused by Republican candidates for president with opponents depicted as villains and completely demonized. Frank Bruni in the New York Times notes that this will mean a campaign over the next year that makes a furious effort to fill Americans with more fear and anger than they already feel. And that's a scary thought, especially considering that Americans possess around 400 million guns, more than one per person. That fun holiday of Halloween resulted in at least 11 people dead and over 50 injured in various shootings right after that mass shooting in Maine. So although we are thousands of miles away from the actual battlefields, the poisons of fear, hate, and anger are in us strongly. How can the Buddhist medicine for suffering help us? As usual with something like this, I turn to the work of Thich Nhat Hanh. His experiences of being an activist monk during the war in Vietnam when his country was being torn apart were profoundly painful. Some of his fellow monks immolated themselves to draw attention to the need to stop the war and he witnessed great violence and destruction. Many of his writings focus on using mindfulness to transform anger and hatred into understanding 
and embracing the truth of interdependent co-arising. He said, we need the vision of interbeing. We cannot cut reality into pieces. The well-being of this is the well-being of that. So we have to do things together. Every side is our side. There is no evil side. He told a story about a young monk who was walking on the streets of Saigon during the Vietnam War when an American soldier spit on his head and the monk came home and cried. Thich Nhat Hanh told the monk, if you were born into a family in New Jersey or California, and if you read the kind of newspapers and magazines that that soldier read, you would also believe that all Buddhist monks are bad communists and you would spit on the head of a monk too. Thich Nhat Hanh went on to tell the young monk that American GIs were trained to look on all Vietnamese as enemies and were sent here to kill or be killed and they are victims, just like Vietnamese soldiers and civilians. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote about being told of a situation that affected him deeply, about a young refugee girl of 12 on a boat who was raped by a sea pirate and then jumped into the ocean and drowned herself. He said that when you hear a story like that, you naturally take the side of the girl and feel angry and then it is easy to see the solution of getting a gun and shooting the pirate. But he recommends the process of looking deeply. And as he did that in his meditation, he saw that if he had been raised in the village of the pirate under the same conditions, there would be a good chance that he would have become a sea pirate too. And he wrote a poem that I'll share in a moment called Call Me By My True Names, which we've shared in here before, but I think it's beneficial to hear it again as we receive such constant messages these days that it's us against them. Please call me by my true names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear pond. And I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all stick and bones, skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate, 
and I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Polidoro with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up, and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. In looking deeply and understanding interbeing, we have to learn how to manage our feelings of anger. Thich Nhat Hanh says, without being peace, we cannot do anything for peace. If you nourish your anger and hatred, you burn yourself. Understanding is the only way out. Fear or hatred, born of ignorance, amplifies your pain. He mentions various Buddhist teachings that can help us with this. And tonight, I especially wanted to focus on the paramitas, one in particular. Paramita can be translated as perfection or perfect realization. The Chinese character used for paramita means crossing over to the other shore. We are on the shore of suffering and anger and pain, and we want to cross over to the shore of peace and well-being. Thich Nhat Hanh cites the Buddha talking about how we can't wait and hope for the other shore to come to us. We have to make the effort to cross over by practicing the six paramitas, which all work together. They are dana paramita, giving or generosity, which we talked about in here, uh, often in our efforts to keep the lights on in our sendo. Shila Paramita, the precepts. Kashanti Paramita, my particular focus tonight, patience or inclusiveness. There's also Virya Paramita, diligence or energy. Dhyana Paramita, meditation. And Prajna Paramita wisdom, understanding. But tonight I especially want to focus on kashanti. It's usually translated as patience or forbearance. But Thich Nhat Hanh believes that the word inclusiveness better conveys the Buddha's teaching. Inclusiveness is the capacity to receive, embrace, and transform the pain inflicted on us by others whether loved ones or people we might consider enemies. The Buddha offered this image. If you take a handful of salt and pour it into a small bowl of water, that water will be too salty to drink. However, if you pour that amount of salt into a large river, that water will still be drinkable because the immensity of the river 
has the capacity to absorb and transform. The Buddha also taught that we can use images of earth, fire, and air, in addition to water. We want to practice like the earth, which can receive all substances, fragrant or foul, thrown at it without grasping or aversion, and can receive and embrace them. We can practice like fire, which can consume and burn everything offered to it without discrimination. Fire can burn the things that are negative in order to transform them. Finally, we can practice like the air, which carries all smells, good and bad, without grasping or aversion, and disperses them. Thich Nhat Hanh stresses that the practice of this paramita does not mean we are to suppress our pain. We are to embrace suffering, not turn away from it. He says the only way to do this is to make our heart big. However, the Buddhist teachings on suffering also stress the recognition of how we continue to create suffering for ourselves by various behaviors that feed suffering, such as the sense impressions that we're letting in. I mentioned in my last talk uh, about the fire in Maui uh, that I didn't need to read any more accounts uh, of survivors of the fires or see more pictures of the burned cars because I already had plenty of empathy for the suffering of people there and my own well-being would suffer from constant immersion in it. I think we all have to find our own way to balance knowledge of the suffering of the world without being overtaken by it in a way that is not helpful, which I believe is happening to the woman I mentioned who watches constant social media feeds about torture and killings in the attack on Israel. I think we need to ask ourselves, what is the impact on this behavior, uh, of this behavior on our understanding, our well-being, and our ability to take helpful action in the world. Perhaps there is a middle way between overwhelm on the one hand and denial on the other. The Buddha offered other teachings that support our development of inclusiveness. One day, a man who worshiped Brahma as the universal God asked the Buddha what he should do to be sure he could be with Brahma after he died. The Buddha respected people's desires to practice in their own way and told him that since Brahma is the source of love, to dwell with him, you must practice the Brahma abodes or the four immeasurable minds of love. Love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. The Buddha stressed the importance of these teachings for generating well-being and ending afflictions. He said that whoever practices the four immeasurable minds together with the seven factors of awakening, the four noble truths, and the noble eightfold path will arrive deeply at enlightenment. It does kind of cover all the bases. <laughs> So the first of the immeasurable minds is matri, love or loving kindness, with roots in the word that means friend. 
Thich Nhat Hanh recommends that we try to understand others deeply as he did in the poem about the sea pirate. We must listen deeply so that we can truly understand the suffering of others and what might be truly helpful. Thich Nhat Hanh notes that we all have the seeds of love in us and we can nurture our ability to provide love without expecting anything in return. The next immeasurable mind is karuna or compassion, the capacity to relieve and transform suffering. We can look to the model of Avalokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of compassion who hears the cries of the world and uses all her hands and eyes to help. The third element of these minds is mudita, joy, which comes from dwelling in the present moment and mindfully appreciating the wonders of the world around us, other beings, the natural world, the taste of the tea. And finally, the fourth is upeksha, U-P-E-K-S-H-A, which means equanimity. Upa means over and ishk means to look. You can climb the mountain to view the whole situation, to really look it over, not bound by one side or the other. And the word also connotes non-attachment, letting go, non-discrimination, even-mindedness. This seems especially helpful as an antidote to the polarized thinking that I'm talking about. Nick Kristoff, who I cited earlier, is not a Buddhist, but beautifully illustrates Upeksha in saying, the best answer to this test is to try, even in the face of provocation, to cling to our values. That means that despite our biases, we try to uphold all lives as having equal value. If your ethics see some children as invaluable and others as disposable, that's not moral clarity, but moral myopia. We must not kill Gazan children to try to protect Israeli children. Barack Obama recently did the same, I think, in urging people to take in the whole complex truth about Israel and Hamas, saying what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it. And what is also true is that the occupation and what's happening to the Palestinians is unbearable. I was supervising another therapist who had been feeling understandably challenged with navigating discussions around the war with her Jewish and Palestinian clients. She told me, I'm against war crimes by anyone. We agreed that was a pretty reasonable bottom line. Um, I've been looking at those posters of kidnapped Israelis and dead Palestinians and thinking that we as humans have the ability to care about all of them at the same time. Only many of our current social media channels are fueling the opposite in a very black and white way. I have been happy to hear this statement going around lately. Everyone is safe or no one is safe. Miyoshi and I have been rewatching the Godfather movies. Some, some of my all time favorites. Uh, as you probably know, 
the mob boss Vito Corleone is portrayed quite sympathetically as a young man whose family was murdered in Italy in the context of ongoing feuds or vendettas. He escapes to America and begins to accrue money and security for himself and his family. And somehow the process involves more and more murder. The Corleone family becomes a large criminal organization, but the highest value everyone espouses is the importance of family. Vito's son, Michael, initially resists being part of the organization, but after an attempt on his father's life, he eventually becomes head of the family, using his skills to eliminate uh, his rivals, again, mostly through murder. His wife, who initially loves him very much, is horrified by his behavior and they become estranged. His attorney and counselor, knowing Michael is about to embark on another killing spree, asks Michael, what is he supposed to do when Michael kills everybody? Michael tells him, I don't need to kill everybody, Tom, just my enemies, which he does, including his brother who betrayed him. And the man who aspired to a happy and secure family is left all alone. It's a brilliant depiction, I think, of the ultimate consequences of seeking vengeance as a way of life. And as Buddhists, we know that dividing the world into friend and enemy is deluded thinking. Katagiri Roshi says that if we are caught in delusion, we see other beings as separate from us, but a clearer view is to see all beings as ourselves and to live in peace and harmony with them. Quite a challenge in these times, I know. Um, and I welcome your thoughts about this. Thank you.